Rebel Force Radio presents... Incoming! Declassified. So, this is where the fun begins. A roundtable discussion about Star Wars. The Clone Wars. Here we go. In laser collectors. Maximum firepower. Boom. Boom. All batteries return fire. Oh, yes, sir. Now it's time for Clone Wars. Declassified. I've been waiting a long time for this moment. We all have. The Clone Wars has landed in a big way with this episode. I think it's the Darth Maul we've been wanting to see for the last 13 years. I think that it's certainly the Clone Wars that we've been dying to see for the last five. And boy, oh boy, did they deliver on every count. I'm starting it now. They delivered on every count, but we've got our A-team with us here to talk about it, break it all down, starting with my good friend and yours from Chicago, Jimmy Mack. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars fans. Yes, The Lawless, probably one of the most anticipated episodes in Clone Wars history. We've been wanting to see this episode since Mother Towson looked into that shattered crystal ball at the end of the Night Sisters trilogy, and we saw Darth Maul's face and realized he was still out there, and he could still raise holy hell. And he does just that in this episode, and everything comes to a peak, and we finally get a see what the implications of reinserting Darth Maul into the Star Wars galaxy has on the other characters and situations on a whole. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this episode tonight on Clone Wars Declassified. By the way, is it me or does Mother Towson look like Jane Lynch from Glee? Anybody else no, see that? Never thought of that. No? No, okay, no, all right. That's all right. That voice you hear, of course, Kyle Newman, and we're so grateful to have him back, especially on this episode. Hello, Kyle. I am honored to be on Rebel Force Radio, my source for the force, (laughs) with my brothers in the force, a justifiable, certified Council of Jedi Masters. You guys are like, you guys have your PhD in Star Wars. We thought about it 10,000 hours. We are experts. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And also rounding out the panel from London, Mr. Paul Bateman. Woo! There he is. All right. I think very late, but very, yeah. very excited. So can't go to sleep. Now, Paul, I'm just curious. You, do you see Clone Wars on Saturdays like we do in the States? When do you see uh, it? I, I do see of some very generous friends. Oh, so uh, when is it actually... Are you behind us or are you ahead of us over there? I think we are on the broadcast. You. Yeah. you are behind us. Okay, well, I was bit, curious I about that. Curious about that. So uh, anyway, so you guys are on season three, right? Episode six, <laughs> corruption. <laughs> Mugans. Yeah. Oh season- wait, the Mugans were back in this one. <laughs> uh, what do you mean they were back in this one? They were. They yeah, were. They were. In they what? Were they were spotted on the loading dock when when uh, yeah. Obi Wan landed on Mandalore. He parked the uh, Twilight there, and with the problems he was having with the dock, he uh, with the uh, with the uh, what do you call it? the the ramp, the docking mm-hmm. ramp. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mugans, those weird looking Egyptian type aliens, were there. Lo- oh, right, right, right. The Mugans. See, now I'm getting them a little bit confused with the Pikes. So, I, you know what? They, they have a similar vibe. But, yes, that's right. I remember the Mugans being the Egyptians. 
uh, and the Pikes are not. Yeah, but, so, but they, they, <laughs> sadly enough, you know, it's really weird. Uh, a guy like Newt Gunray, who, by the way, was not in this episode, a guy like Newt Gunray can stay in his seat of power, even though he's been charged with all these heinous crimes. You see, the Mugans are still in business on Mandalore, even though they attempted to kill children with poison Snapple. Yeah, what what is going on? Uh, you know, it's it's the I think it's corruption. And gangsters. That's what I think it is. Let's not tarnish this discussion with any more <laughs> Mugen chat. <laughs> so let's just get Corky right out of the way. Let's get You know what, actually? Let's get Corky out of the way, too. Let's get everything bad out of the way. I hear Auntie one more time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I want to talk a little bit. You, you, you talk, Jim, about the, the, the Mugens and the Trade Federation and how they still have a seat at the table, and they still have a lot of influence and great power. I want to talk a little bit about the the politics of this. There was a great scene between Obi-Wan, Yoda, and Ki-Adi Mundi. And it was very, very clear that for the first time, as I can remember, Obi-Wan, I think, feels like Anakin does half the time. That or maybe he feels, he feels like Qui-Gon Jinn felt half the time. Because Qui Gon often was butting heads with the Council, and so much so, even young. Uh, wait, no, I don't, wait a minute. I don't think this is about the. I don't think it's about the Council. I think it's much more personal than that. This really wasn't about what the Council is saying as much as it is about the politics of a neutral system. I mean, Kiati Mundi is almost. I don't know what the word is, but he's almost kind of. It's not taunting. But it's kind of na 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 about well you know hey if um, the Duchess wouldn't be uh, uh, holding up the neutrality of Mandalore then we could do something but sorry Ovi our hands are tied. Well maybe he feels like he can talk that way to Kenobi because he knows how close Kenobi is to the situation so in some way shape or form he's trying to influence Satine through Kenobi hoping that. Obi-Wan will go and impart this great wisdom from Ki-Adi Mundi to Satine, and that will open up Satine's eyes. You know, it's a passive-aggressive move. Isn't it a kind of akin to Onderon? I mean, obviously, Onderon is, is um, it's a separatist planet, and this one is, is classified as a neutral planet. But uh, they have an aversion to getting involved there. Uh, but they begrudgingly do so, and there's an aversion to it here. I don't understand why they just didn't see this as an opportunity to ingratiate themselves to Mandalore to bring them into the fold um, for whatever resources it has and and say, well, if we can go bail Duchess Satine out of a terrible situation, maybe they will align with us. I don't know. Maybe maybe what it is is that this is – we're pushing towards the end of the war. They don't have the resources, and they don't have – you know, the sheer numbers, perhaps, that they once did to do something like that. Perhaps they really are in a position where they're having to, well, literally choose their battles. Yeah, I, I mean, I get that. But they were off helping, helping Che Guevara, you know. <laughs> and I feel like, obviously, uh, Mandalore just seems like a much more um, important planet. But... I don't know. I mean, it's just an observation. Yeah. It just seemed like an opportunity, you know, or Obi-Wan could have at least leveraged and said, well, let me go. And maybe as a worst case scenario, you know, I can bring them into the fold finally. And we can prove that, you know, the we're the side to be on. You know, it's just a it's a political opportunity that could averted a lot of um, 
a lot of death and added some light well, to their stuff. You know, one might ask too, uh, Paul, why didn't Satine ring the the bat phone, you know, into the Jedi Council, you know, at least onto Coruscant before all of this? I mean, things were starting to go to pot with you know, the the reappearance of Death Watch and how they were perceived as being heroes, but you know, still the government was being threatened by this huge uh, organization of uh, crime lords and various families and factions. Why didn't she call them up sooner? I think it's just pride, isn't it? I mean, if you remember the, the when when we first met Satine, weren't they trying to kind of keep the distance from? But not look like they're keeping their distance. Well, yeah, nice one. <laughs> but but like they were trying to kind of you know look after themselves and not get too involved in the conflict. And I guess that that you know that's hand in hand with not not um, accepting the help too too often either, because you can't kind of have one without the other, really, can you? Without without kind of accepting that you're a part of that you know uh, operation. You know, mm. so I think she's just trying to kind of keep a distance and and maybe also just kind of show that she's powerful enough to handle it on her own. You know, and I guess politically it could be very bad for her if, uh, if, if she kind of looks like she needs to go to the Jedi to, to get out of a, a tight spot when uh, outsiders turn up. Well, maybe, Jim, in fairness, you could say that she really didn't know at that time what exactly she was up against. That's right. Yeah, she's been dealing with the Death Watch for a number of years now. And when the Jedi did intervene last time, or the Republic, it kind of blew up. And in many ways, you think Satine may be even blaming the Jedi for some of the things that was happening on Mandalore with the Death Watch terrorist acts, right? So when the Death Watch show up again, they're offering a handout, saying, you know, we'll help you with this, uh, these terrorists that have come now, these, these gangsters. But the handout's to the people, not to the government, not to Satine's government. Trisla is is blaming her, essentially. Right, right. And she sees maybe she's lost the people at that point. So what can she do? Go running to the phone to call the Jedi? Would that really be a proper move? It seems like Satine's a very proper person, Mm. and she would assume the responsibility herself, not just when there's some sort of political insurrection or terrorist activity. She just doesn't instantly go running off to the phone to call the Jedi. She wants to maintain that neutrality. And maybe she even wants to keep the Jedi at arm's length because being around Obi-Wan Kenobi brings up some old memories and thoughts and feelings for him that she needs to bury down because she knows that it's a forbidden love and she can't get involved with him and he won't get involved with her. So she might even hesitate to call out right away because of that. It's complicated. Kyle, I wonder if it's an illustration of just how low the perception of the Jedi is at this time. It's almost as if Satine would have rather practically lost her government to crime lords than bring the Republic back into the fold. Well, it is. I think that's also where we can see that the trajectory of this season, I think what Dave even alluded to on the the last time he spoke to you guys and also on the the, the Google chat recently was that um, we're going to see how the Jedi got to a place where they were, where Emperor Palpatine could declare an empire and he could declare the dictatorship and take over. Um, And he could 
paint a picture of how the Jedi were the aggressors in the situation. And I think we're really nearing that point between these episodes and the next episodes. We're going we're gonna to get a, a really good portrait of just how low their, um, their level of respect is for them in the galaxy. The war has taken its toll on them, not just physically and mentally, but uh, PR-wise. They've been, they've been marginalized by Palpatine and, and without even using the dark side. He's just manipulated them into a position where they're, they're – you know, the most powerful beings are now powerless and they don't even know how it, it happened. So that's coming up. But Wayne, one of the big resounding things for me out of this was just, again, I, I've talked before about this, is, you know, the characters, the weakness of characters like uh, Padme and a lot of the pacifists and Satine being another prime example of it. And I think it's a recurring theme. If it happens once, you can say it's just a character. If it happens twice, you can call it a coincidence but when it happens on every level and, it, and it's actually at the core of why the republic falls because they're too weak to do anything until um they're past the point of no return this is another indication and here she's lost her planet in the last episode we see this guy stage a massive you know public display that just you know he goes and he has a speech and it's over and look what palpatine does he issues a speech in revenge of the sith and and he ends the republic and um People are so hungry for action versus inactivity versus mm-hmm. weakness. Mm-hmm. And you contrast these characters like Padme and Satine and, and, and contrast it with Princess Leia and you see someone that's, what, she's 17 years old and she's taking arms and she's willing to die for a cause. And it's so different to someone like Satine who, I mean, it, it's she's so intellectualized her perspective on what Mandalore should be that she rightfully loses her planet. Because if you can't protect your planet from six black sun guys walking down uh, (laughs) your central (laughs) corridor with guns and that's the tyranny that takes over a planet, then I don't know how you are a legitimate leader capable of protecting your people. So rightfully she should lose her planet to, to death watch because she couldn't even provide on a basic government level, which is citizen protection. Paul, uh, Satine seems to be awfully anti-violence unless the violence is saving her butt from a prison. Um, <laughs> is that that's, I, that's, that's a loaded question, I'm sure. But, but help me understand where the line's drawn. I can't get into the head of a character like this. Well, I, th- I think isn't there isn't really kind of at the core of that the idea that, you know, that pacifism can accomplish something. You know, and I, I believe that it can. I, th- I think that it's not it's not obviously it's not the right thing thing for every situation and in in her position she certainly needs to understand that occasionally you know pacifism is not going to work um it doesn't mean that it has to be black and white that pacifism just does not work ever because that isn't true and and but then conversely to say that pacifism is always going to be you know a cure-all is ridiculous i mean there are going to be situations where pacifism isn't going to help you at all so i don't think she's necessarily um you know, contradictory or anything when she gets into those sort of situations. I just think that she draws the line where she chooses to draw it in the sand. And I think where she's drawing it is right before um, it becomes unavoidable. And and she's just, I think her standards are you have to stick to your pacifist ideals as long as is humanly possible until your life's in danger or there's absolutely no other choice but to, to deal with it another way. So I think it's quite a noble philosophy, however unrealistic it might be in certain situations. I think it's a, I think it's a nice way of looking at the world. You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's almost expecting the universe to kind of behave in a way in which it doesn't. But uh, it's unnatural. Yeah, but um, well, I don't I mean, know. It, um, because Paul, on, on a basic level, if you look at 
everything. Just look, understanding our planet is it's in constant flux and in constant conflict. Even when you get a virus in your system, your body's always working, always fighting. You can't negate the intrinsic aspects of of conflict. And I mean, there's something unnatural about thinking you can you can be that. Um, I, I think it's it is noble to try and go for that. It's very noble. But what did Maul say about the noble causes? Um, and it, it's good to strive for that. Obviously, I'm not saying you should be militaristic. But well, hold on a second. I, let me let me ask. And the is, rebels is, don't achieve anything ultimately until they are willing to sacrifice. And I think that it works on on almost all levels. Until you're willing to put something on the line, you're never going to earn more. You're never going to get more. You could say that she's putting herself on the line. You know, it's all a question of kind of what it is you're willing to sacrifice. You know, well, and, when? And, but how? Well, how late in the game is she doing that? I mean, the question is that whether or not if she was, she may even believe that like her own pure, you know, kind of however naive pacifism may actually be, uh, you know, an enormous mo- motivation for her people to kind of pull together and 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 survive, even if the way they survive is to abandon pacifism, but they use her as a kind of a martyr or something. So I mean, she, well, and, well, and Obi Wan even says that he's he says to the to yeah. Mundi and Yoda, you know, what we're supposed to just let her planet, you know, we're supposed to lose Mandalore, let her lose Mandalore, and become a martyr to a bunch of I mean, crime lords. I, I would say, you know, if you look at, you know, without getting too kind of heavy about it, but you know, you, you could kind of say that, you know, that um, you know, a lot a lot of uh, religions are based on a kind of a, a martyr figure that that embraces a pacifist ideology. And uh, that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that the followers, you know, do the same thing. But that act of pacifism can be an enormous motivator for uh, the nonviolence, whether it's uh, MLK or Gandhi or yeah. Christ or what have you. Yeah, get I get it. it. You know, but I keep going back to the Jedi philosophy, which is, you know, you use it for what does Yoda say uh, for knowledge and defense, never for attack. And mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of wondering why can't uh, I, th- I think. I mean, personally, I, I think that, you know, the Jedi for me sort of seem to embrace a more sensible um, middle ground. In that it's almost like a kind of an Aikido um, uh, approach to, to, yeah. to violence and aggression, which is that the, 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 they try and take a very measured response to whatever's happening to them in that they don't kind of adopt a pacifist stance where they're like, we're just going to let these people walk over us. But then they don't kind of adopt an aggressive, you know, we're going to be the best defenses attack sort of attitude either. They try and kind of completely balance it out. So that the, yeah. their retaliation completely matches. Well, I, I, com- I completely agree with you. I'm just saying that nothing gets done in this galaxy um, and no one can repair the rights of the, all the wrongs of the weak and the pacifists yeah. that preceded the rebels right. have to get undone by violence. And this is another example of that inactivity, naive thought taking over and shaping the galaxy that rebels are going to right inherit. right the, the, the show do the, something more the show yeah 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 kyle the show isn't called star peace it's called star wars <laughs> right i mean we're looking Satine is the ultimate galactic tree hugger <laughs> <laughs> hey nothing wrong with hooking trees you know? <clears throat> paul does it daily um Jason, you're being so literal about the title, you know, Star Wars, Star Peace. And speaking of titles, you, you, you threw down that Yoda quote, which is the force should be used for knowledge and defense, never for attack. Attack. And I thought of that line today when I was at Toys R Us and I saw on the shelves Yoda's Jedi attack fighter. And it's like a, a mini rig. It looks like a Jedi fighter that you would see 
Obi-Wan flying around in an attack of the clones, but it's real small and green and it's for Yoda. And I thought of that line. Yoda would never use his skills as a Jedi to fly a ship in the battle using that philosophy, unless that was a philosophy he came up with during the dark times at 20 years stretch where he was by himself on Dagobah contemplating on the force. But why would Yoda have a Jedi attack fighter? Yeah. You know, I like the idea. I I like the idea, Jim, that you're saying where, you know, he had that, that almost, you know, two decades to kind of navel gaze and commune with Qui-Gon commune with the force. And, you you have to think that with in the case of Yoda and Obi-Wan, a lot of that time was probably spent going over and over what went wrong, what was the yeah. downfall, what happened. And perhaps that was one of the aha moments, which is that's where we went wrong. We were the aggressors in these ca- in this case because Palpatine manipulated them to be aggressors. I think you know, it just it solidified a lot of those philosophies Yoda has in Empire Strikes Back and we know Yoda based on those philosophies. So when we watch a show like The Clone Wars or we watch the Star Wars prequels, we're often holding these characters up to these standards that we have already established due to their future character being already known and loved by us. So it's hard to jump to conclusions when you are talking about Yoda in the Clone Wars compared to Yoda in Empire Strikes Back. Because you're right, he had that buffer period there where he realized everything unraveled because of attack and the I, war I, and things I think, yeah, I think there's an important distinction to draw though, guys, in, in the you know, I think I think that the pacifists would argue that, you know, kind of almost like all action is inherently, you know, aggression. Whereas I think the Jedi, you know, they take action, but it's not not necessarily coming from an aggressive place. You know, they can be as as violent as you like, but as long as their their eyes are calm and and it's done for logical sort of you know considered reasoning, um, it's not actually aggression, even though the action may be result in somebody's death because the emotion is taken out of the equation. So it's it, there is a an in between state. There's like the the, the aggressiveness of the Sith, the pacifists. Pacifism of the uh, Mandalorians, but but the the Jedi are, are neither. I think they take action, but they're not naturally aggressive. No matter how violent they are, that's not aggression. It may be brutality, you know, physical brutality, but it's not coming from an angry place. No, but what defines them and what defines this whole galaxy? What we focus on in these stories is the hero, and the hero normally has to pick up arms or do something because of an extraordinarily adverse situation presented to them where they have to do something that defines them on a bigger or deeper level. So you have to, you have to do something to be defined as a hero, to be a leader, to, to be remembered, to have a myth written about you. Um, so that's where I see it. And that's why I, I'm just really what it is for me is that the inactivity of a lot of these characters, because it's a luxury to be inactive, uh, mm. the, the galaxy that, that we're in in the prequel era is one that has coasted. Uh, it's a place of luxury, comfort, and you know style over function. And they're, they're continuing with that way of thought. Although it's antiquated, they're continuing. It's like, it's like on Downton Abbey where you know, Lord Grantham is stuck in a way of thought and be, his mistakes are not going to carry them into the new era. He's not ready to deal with what's at stake and he's in denial. And what will happen is the next generation is going to be left with those issues. What Star Wars like it always was. It's it's the 
the George's generation dealing with his parents' Vietnam mistakes is how he, you know, he defined it, like what you inherit and how you and how you handle it. It is it and is so, interesting. Kai, these, wanna... these prequels have always set up, and he didn't tell these stories first. They have added that extra layer to the original trilogy. They set up and they contextualize that core of the thing, which the sequels will then further define and hopefully reflect upon, and they will have those kind of layers and perspectives and uh, mirroring. But these, the OT generation is defined, they are a, a reaction to the mistakes of their parents, and that's what we're seeing in characters like Satine. She is a failure. Uh, Paul, it was interesting in the way that Obi-Wan handled the decision, the ultimate decision by Yoda and Ki-Adi Mundi. I brought that up to Jimmy earlier, and he thought of Qui-Gon and Qui-Gon's, you know, butting heads with the council. My first thought was, oh, now Obi-Wan knows or should know what it feels like to be Anakin, especially when he takes the matters into his own hands, even uses Anakin's ship to go and, you know, go rogue and try to save Satine. Is he is he getting a, a taste of what it's like to be all alone like Anakin is? I don't. I don't think so because I think. I think. Uh, uh, you know, and one of the things that's fantastic about this show is is the fact that it kind of has built upon Obi Wan's character to the point where I don't think I like any other character any more than than I like Obi like Obi Wan. And although I I enjoyed you know Alec Guinness in the movies and uh, liked liked Ewan McGregor, I think I think in this in this series I think we're beginning to sort of see what he's really made out of and he's definitely made out of something very very different from Anakin so I think his experience despite kind of going through some of the same stuff is entirely different I think when you saw um, you know Satine's situation uh, unfold he didn't he didn't react in the way that Anakin did there wasn't even a moment of anger that I could detect He he looked upset and troubled by the whole kind of thing but his response was not um, fury or, you know, it was more kind of frustration and disappointment and sadness um, and, and grief. Yeah, because I think I think he's just more kind of dialed into um, the nature of the universe and what it's all about and uh, realizes that anger really is not the way. And uh, it doesn't make him weak. It makes him strong. And uh, I think I think that he he's going to be more able to uh, appropriately kind of deal with the situation than Anakin ever could. So I think, I think it's an entirely different experience for him. Jimmy Mack, there was, along the lines of what Paul is saying, there was a part of me when watching Satine's execution, and that's exactly what it was. It was an execution. But it was very much in line with the kind of Sith temptation um, that we've seen in the past. We've seen Palpatine dangle Vader in front of Luke, like fresh meat. We've seen Palpatine dangle Count Dooku in front of Anakin. And we've seen the way Anakin reacted and we've seen the way Luke reacted. Obi-Wan reacted in a completely different way than those other ones. Yeah. He's a, he's a, a, He's an honor student when it comes to being a Jedi. He really keeps everything in check, and he's devoted his entire life to following those ideals and beliefs, and he has conditioned himself to such a point where he can he masters that. He can control his emotions. He doesn't 
fly off the handle. He didn't even really fly off the handle in the final duel against Anakin on Mustafar. He very coldly walked away. But, uh, well, you know, Dave Filoni actually mentioned that in the Google Plus Hangout. Because what he said is, and I think it was the Google Plus Hangout, where he mentioned that Obi-Wan's arc leading up to Mustafar, I mean, it has to build. And Obi-Wan has to suffer loss after loss and defeat after defeat until finally, when his best friend betrays him and betrays everything that they've worked for, that's when he loses it. That's when he screams, you were the chosen one. You were my brother. But does he lose it? I don't think he loses it. I don't think Obi-Wan... Well, it's the crescendo. It's the crescendo. That's about as close as he's going to come, probably. That, now, see, that was more born out of frustration to me, that scene, where he was just... What, he's just again, frustrated that Anakin turned? Not well, devastated? No, 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 he was under extreme duress, <laughs> obviously. I mean, it was his entire world shattered. Yeah, devastation point. is what it was. Yes, yes, devastation, absolutely. You sound like Padme. He's under a lot of stress. <laughs> I don't mean to downplay that. I'm just saying that if I saw my entire universe collapse, I would probably completely go insane. So he, in, you know, in comparison, he keeps it together. He moves on and moves forward and lives his life, no matter you know, how beaten down he gets. He uh, never gave in to desperation. But in this situation where... Satine gets coldly and cruelly murdered right in front of him. And then Maul, you know, very smugly sits down on the throne there and just looks so pleased with himself as he feeds off of Obi-Wan's pain at that moment. Mm, You know that that's kind of a high for him. Right. Sith Lord, that's sort of a high for him. So what's he doing? Is is he gambling? Why does he kill Satine at that moment? To show he's powerful, that he's more powerful than Obi-Wan, that he can take something away from Obi-Wan? Or was he doing it to maybe push Obi-Wan closer to the dark side and see what his reaction would be? Maybe he would, Obi-Wan would get so furious he would take a lunge at Darth Maul. And then you would see Savage Press step in. And then maybe Obi-Wan would defeat Savage Press. And then maybe Darth Maul would somehow be able to convince Obi-Wan to join him and become his apprentice. That's how it kind of unfolds all the time when you're talking about why, do the, why does the meat get dangled by these Sith Lords? Vader gets dangled in front of Luke by Palpatine. It's because they want to see the natural progression, progression happen. They want to either be proved to themselves that they ch- made the right choice with their existing apprentice or it's a recruiting tool. Are you better than my apprentice? Give yourself to the dark side and let's see. So, you know, maybe that was an option for Maul. Why did he kill Satine at that moment, at that point in time? He didn't stand there and pontificate on it. He just did it. He just did it and then sat back and watched the fallout. There was really no rhyme or reason for it. Why was she the sacrificial lamb at that moment? Well, he says something to the effect of your thoughts betray you. He he knows at that moment when he has the two of them there that you know, she is his, to use a cliche, Achilles heel. She is the closest thing that he has to Obi-Wan's heart. And and I don't know, Kyle, I mean, it, it villains often find that when it comes to revenge, there's some things worse than death, right? 
Well, I think uh, there oftentimes is something worse than death. I think death is like the last ditch option because you, if you're put in a place of suffering by someone, the the equal and opposite kind of experience that 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 shared experience is is the despair you've been through is what you want them to experience. So, cause that's obviously the thing that you're so hung up about is how much strife and grief it's caused you. And, and Obi-Wan took a lot from Darth Maul. I mean, he's been usurped, uh, as, uh, Sidious's apprentice. He was stripped of half his body. He was mm-hmm. set back 10 years plus in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of forced to be, you know, he's he's emerged from it incredibly powerful. But I think one of the things that's interesting is he is presenting this scenario to him, and he doesn't just kill him because he wants to vindicate the decisions he made, the choices he's had to make becoming a Sith and what's defined him. And by, by putting Obi-Wan in that situation, he's not intellectualizing. He's physically showing him that or, you know, he's thinking what will happen with Obi-Wan is that that will occur in Obi-Wan because that's what occurred in him. Mm. Um, he wants to break Obi-Wan, not kill him. Break him. Killing him would be easy. Him, but he wants to show him the design of the dark side and the way it actually can soothe you because if you give into it, suddenly there's a release. At least that's the way it defines him and the mm. way it rules mm. him because it does rule him. And Obi-Wan, rather than giving into any emotion, has to step back and he has to intellectualize it and get it out of it. And he's not going to make that move. He knows what that move means. So he's approaching it, um, you know, in a very thoughtful way, because the minute he gives in to anything, he betrays everything he's ever stood for. And that's why it's true. I mean, being a Jedi is, is a lot harder than being a Sith. I mean, you're making, you're almost, you're doing less. You're constantly doing nothing which has to symbolize more. Mm-hmm. And then you act when you need to act, when it's absolutely essential. And the Force will tell you when that is. And, and something must have signified to him that that wasn't the time to react, that there would be another time. And, I mean, that's, that's, that is the greater thing. And he responds to Darth Maul's philosophy with his own philosophy about why there's always going to be people that the Jedi will always then be there to be better than, than the Sith. But what you're seeing is is Darth Maul step up as a villain and what how much he's learned. Because from what we glimpsed of him in, in The Phantom Menace, you know, he was he was a weapon. You know, he was an instrument. Um, and we never got more than that out of him. We didn't see what his intellectual side was. We didn't see what kind of tactical prowess he had beyond immediate uh, combat. And physically, of course, he could hold his own versus two very skilled um, saber-wielding Jedi. But here he is in... It's almost like a chess game, right? I mean, he's talking... designed a situation much like his master would have. I mean, he set the trap. He's ensnared him, just like Vader did on on, um, Cloud City for Luke, and just like uh, the the big traps that Palpatine set for the Jedi and for for Anakin, you know? He, He gets what he wants by letting people step into these situations and do it to themselves. And... Obi-Wan didn't fall for that trap. He fell for the trap in arriving there. 
but he wasn't going to fall for it again when he realized that this is the depth of the situation I'm in. Um, but he's also at that point, he is emotionally broken and, um, outmanned. And yeah. I don't know if he, I, th- I think he just realized that that was not the time to do something. Yeah. Paul, Paul, th- one of the things that, um, really stood out to me in this whole particular sequence uh, obviously the story i was swept up in it i it was probably the most invested i've ever been in an episode of this show emotionally and um but i couldn't help but marvel at the subtlety that they're getting out of these character models because what we're describing is a very complex reaction to Satine's death and it's on display by way of james arnold taylor's delivery obviously of the lines but also the way that they are able to illustrate kind of a restrained grief um, without ever the character feeling that the, that he's reacting in a cold way is really remarkable. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think I may have written to you guys the day we all saw this and just said, I think this is the best character animation I've ever seen on television, period. Um, and this is speaking as a person who used to be a character animator. Um, right. I mean, for, for me, you know, it, obviously it's on the page, you know, initially the, the, the drama is there, the, the story is there that kind of, you know, gradually weaves you in and, and, and draws you into the, 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 the drama of the, of the story. But then the performances were just amazing in terms of, you know, Sam's excellent, by the way, English accent. I praise. No, that sounds awful. But I I totally buy him as as Darth Maul, and and think the work that he's doing is just incredibly um, mesmerising to listen to. It is Um, one of the reasons why I have to watch this episode several times in a row uh, as soon as I've seen it. But but to then follow that through with just the most astonishing character animation, and and the most difficult, I'm, I'm sure, character animation in terms of. I mean, by the time the Empress sort of shows up, I mean, his, the, the performance that they got out of that character, just the, the flat out, you know, insanity. Well, and, well we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. We're going to get, don't pop, don't blow your load right now. <laughs> we're talking about Satine and Obi-Wan. We're going to get to the, to the big man in, I mean, in just a minute. Say, yeah. What you were saying about, about timing, uh, Jason, I would mm-hmm. say that, I mean, the, 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 the temptation for all the kind of good guys and for us, most normal human beings is to try and analyze and, and bring logic to the table when, when they're encountering somebody who's this level of psychotic. Um, mm. But the, the sad fact of the matter is that, you know, the, the thing that's hard to accept is that some people are just, you know, dangerous because they enjoy it and they, they'll do something just because they want to. And I, I almost feel as though the, the timing for Moore was in part was just purely because it would, it would be the most unexpected time to do it. He, you know, he had no other reason to do it other than just, you know, sheer, sheer cruelty and I think that would be the most impactful moment to kind of hit Obi-Wan over the head with it. It's like to do it now is kind of unexpected and, and, and maybe going to garner a reaction out of him. Whereas if he waited any longer, you know, it would, he'd probably see it coming and it would be easier for him to control his feelings. Yeah, I think control is a key word here. You think about a guy who was living, eating garbage for a decade and the very opposite of being in control. So totally out of control and he exhibited that out-of-control behavior when we first met him, when Savage Press first found him. And now this is, this is the ultimate control. He can literally control life. And um, not just life, but Obi-Wan's emotional world and 
perhaps even break Obi Wan's spirit as a as a Jedi. Uh, it's just in- incredible, absolutely incredible. A little bit of uh, interesting backstory that we learned about Satine. Jimmy Mac. She has a sister. So you have a sister. Yeah. I but, love it when the hot girls have hot sisters. <laughs> yeah, you were saying before the show started, you're like, man, that's a teen, huh? Yeah, she, looking good in this episode. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Bo-Katan, too. I really enjoyed watching her character develop throughout this story arc. And then that was a little twist at the end that I wasn't expecting at all. As a matter of fact, they did reference Satine's sister. Actually, it was Bo-Katan who referenced her sister. Or is it the other way around? No, it was Satine. Satine mentioned her sister when they were in the twilight, briefly, when they were sitting together in the cockpit of the twilight before the uh, Mando shot him down. Um, that little line of dialogue just totally went by me the first time I watched this episode. And then at the end, when Obi-Wan, echoing Obi-Wan in Revenge of the Sith, when he says, Satine was your sister, I'm so sorry. That's what he says. That's what he says to uh, Padme about Anakin. <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when he reveals to her he had slipped to the dark side and that she was pregnant. And there you go. Anakin, I am so sorry. <laughs> That's just what he says. I'm going to try to incorporate that in my daily routine as well. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to pull it off, though. Uh, I don't. Uh, you know, I don't have that smooth delivery, but um, that was a twist I wasn't expecting at all. But are you guys like me? I mean, really, from the moment her character was introduced, didn't we all believe we would see Satine meet a tragic end at some point during the Clone Wars? Yes, I think when we first met her, I expected that to happen perhaps in the first arc, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I, she seemed like a born martyr, but, you know... It's the Clone Wars, and I half expected them to drop the character and never refer to her again. Right. You know, I, but the fact that she came back in this one, and, and, and I mean, they really used her to great effect. And you look back on some of those episodes that were maybe not our favorite, but it certainly did help to establish her character. So, yeah, I would say that it seemed like, I don't know, what Paul, Kyle, did, did you feel like that her fate was sealed from the beginning? I thought they should have called her, like, Duchess Disposable or something at some point. <laughs> I don't know if it was absolutely sealed, because obviously they've rewritten what Mandalore is and was as a planet. And they've done a great job about incorporating what was there in the expanded universe and taking a lot of the... the it's a spiritual adaptation of, of how it's been in the EU. So it brings aspects of um, their militaristic history... And their clan-like, um, you know, the clan-like dynasty that they've been known for for generations, and having that contrast with the current setup of Mandalore, and they got great conflict out of it because otherwise, if it's such a cleanly defined society that isn't in a state of flux, how interesting is that on screen? They just become like the Pizza Planet. So they made a much more interesting version of Mandalore, um, where it's a, it became a more nuanced planet because i just don't believe in any culture that's 100 percent warlike it's just like klingons it's it, i don't it just wouldn't get to the point of technological advancement that you see klingons in star trek i mean so i think this is this really shows right this is a much more thoughtful look at what a warlike traditionally warlike place would have evolved into and how there is um people hanging on to the past 
I, and and she's at the forefront of it right now. And who knows that? I think the fate of Mandalore um, was up for grabs in this series, and it still may mm. be. It's left uh, as a as a dangling question. But I, I mean, there's still a way she could have easily survived. But once Darth Maul came back into it, and then the element of revenge played so heavily. Uh, that's when I started to anticipate, all right, what's the one thing that we've now established via this series that Obi-Wan has emotional attachment to? Uh, what's his one weakness? It's her. Now we have Darth Maul who's hell-bent on revenge, and he's grown into such – this series has taken Darth Maul into you know a very cool character but into a classic character. Um, and what Sam Witwer's done with the character has just – Elevated. I mean, he's a Sith. He's like one of the big three. You know, it's when it comes to Star Wars villains, it's like Vader, Maul, and and uh, and Sidious slash Palpatine. So uh, he's at that level. So I mean, seeing him in this series and knowing that she was she was this little toy to be smacked around, and mm. and Obi Wan was going to be the person who would suffer. Uh, yeah. Then I started to realize, okay, she's going down. Once I saw that this slate of episodes was on the. <laughs> was on the agenda this season. I was like, okay, now that's the end. Oh, oh, and her picture's on the Who Will Fall poster? Okay, she's definitely <laughs> Right, right. The well, Who Will Fall poster. The Who Will Fall poster. I forgot about that. So so you got a big red X on her now at this point, right? Who's next? But, but, um, I won't say, so yeah, but they did it in such a way where it wasn't just a cheap way of killing no, her. No, easy no, no, right. Her. It was very it impactful. Created a, yes. an amazing drama around it, and it happened in a fantastic way. It which did. is a testament to how awesome this episode and the build-up to this episode was, because this is, without a doubt, um, the finest single episode. Like, I still love arcs like the Young Jedi um, overall. That's still my favorite. Um but this on a informational level and how it impacts the rest of the saga, this is a much more important uh, episode. So on that level, it gave me some answers. It gave me a lot to think about. It had ramifications for the for the movies. It had right, but it, but it, but it wasn't just exposition, movie. which is so great about it. It wasn't just exposition. They gave you action along the way. So it wasn't parallels to the other movies, and right. there's scenes, and there's throwbacks, and there's little nods to what happened in previous seasons and what happens in the movies and what happens right. in, in the original trilogy. It had all these layers in it. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it so did. I, I even seen the twilight come back out of retirement. Yeah, isn't that great? I mean, that was great. And it's really a shame because Dave Filoni talked on the, the, the hangout about a cut scene and yes. I, he wasn't sure if they actually animated it or not, but they did do the voice. Re, uh, well, I'm sure we'll see the gray model statue version of it on the disc. <laughs> right, right. Which is there's a moment when Obi-Wan actually goes to Anakin and, and asks to borrow the Twilight. But this and, being the best episode, it was so cool that they took characters from the worst episode, Corky and <laughs> Tiva, the Mugen Emperor, and put them into this one. So they actually redeemed them a little bit because the worst characters they ever created outside of Tandivo and those two are in this one and they're cool. Well, you know, that's interesting you bring that up because we got an email from Loyal Rebel Force Radio listener Andrew Nowicki, who is who says uh, I've been listening to you guys for a while now, and ever since the airing of the Corruption, it has been the poster child of bad episodes. 
Does the recent events, like the ascent of Almec and the reappearance of Corky, etc., make you rethink any of your previous criticism of that story arc now that there have been consequences from those episodes? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the next Declassified. So he's talking specifically about the events in The Lawless. So has it changed your previous criticisms of corruption and poison Snapple. We, we mentioned it briefly at the beginning of the show. Kyle, you were about ready to break into hives once you even heard us mention the poison tea and the Mugans. Um, but no, I'm- it does redeem the quality of those episodes, but it, it makes them more relevant because they were the things, these were the episodes and, and, and back then, I remember I may have even called it Mandibore when we first started seeing Mandalore and it was, it was a little bit of a snore. I was like, why, why bring this planet into it if it's, if it's just going to be like... You know, where kids go to school and there's Snapple corruption. What, what is this doing in yeah, this I mean, It could have been any, any planet. It really didn't have to be Mandalore. They set up um, Mandalore and the current state of it so this drama could play out. So we got a sense of what Death Watch wanted, why they came back into the fray. And this could all play out. And when we leave this planet, we don't know what it is. And that that's great. That you know, Obi-Wan has that last moment with Bo-Katan and she's like, Mandalore will be fine. You know what I mean? Right. Um, at least we're getting, going to get Maul out of here. So right. it's, um, the identity of that planet is, is still in flux it, and the future of it's up for grabs. But it, this episode has redeemed all the weaker episodes of Mandalore we've ever seen because it actually built towards something worthwhile. What do you it, think, Paul? I, th- I think this, this episode was so kind of, Stand, stand out that it almost everything else looks kind of dull by comparison. I, th- I think what I would have preferred would would be a more gradual, you know, accumulation of drama, so that kind of across the season it slowly builds and builds and builds and escalates to 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 something like music does. You know, I mean, I, I think I, me- I mentioned to you guys via email, you know, that, that one of the things that always kind of surprises me about Clone Wars. Although I thought it would really embrace a show that kind of skips about a lot and, and goes to different places and tells different stories. On on some levels I do, but I kind of feel like I really need that continuity of the characters that I, that I care about and love. And and for me, I kind of feel as though most of the TV shows, you know, if the central characters disappeared for four or five episodes while they tell a story about a frog and a bunch of dustbins, you know, everybody would be switching off. Yeah, right. So, so for me, it's like you know, I kind of think that this episode is is an astonishing testament to how much these really talented people can achieve on every level, and it's a wonderful, um, you know, uh, showcase for for how good this show can be when everybody brings it. I mean, like from from the written word to the, which yeah. is the animation. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I would I would put this up against you know a lot of movies that I've seen this year and say, well, this. You know, bang for bang, minute for minute, this is better than than ninety nine percent of the drama that's out there, be it animated or otherwise. Um, and there's there's these two I, main dramatic thrusts to it too, which were yeah. great, where they could balance both at the same time. And that's absolutely. You know, we were talking, to Paul, about the on the ongoing drama of it and weaving it. I mean, Star Wars has always been synonymous with cross cutting, and it's balancing multiple things at once. That's what George always did in the original trilogy. That's what he did in American Graffiti. It's a style of editing where you can take multiple storylines and weave them together. And he became a master of that. He's an editor. And I would have liked to see more of that up until this point in the series. And we've always talked about this when we're on. Like, we shouldn't get four episodes of just this and then three of this. I know they like to have that. But Star Wars has always been about 
balancing multiple things at the same time and stringing it along and elevating it and cutting it just the right spot so you're going to come back to it to watch where the next thing is. And then you can leave out information that you're moving the audience forward. You're not just moving them forward. You're propelling them forward. You're pushing them forward. You're challenging the audience so your mind fills in the gap. And the more I think about it, the more I really don't like those robot episodes because they did not challenge me at all. If anything, they slowed me down to the point where I was thinking too much instead of experiencing and feeling. Right. And that's the problem with them. And cross-cutting. And I hope we see more of that with this drama coming in the next few – as this thing builds. For it to build successfully, it needs to be building on all levels at the same time into a climax. So the series reaches its dramatic third act. can't just be like, oh, here's going to be four episodes, but then we're going to have two filler, and then we'll get back. That's not cross-cutting. Yeah. And I know that's not maybe the point of the way this show was, but there is still time to adapt to it, to give it a, a fulfilling third act. It says a lot that, that like, you know, for, for uh, yeah, Athena was watching uh, this episode today for the second time. And, uh, you know, obviously she's, she's not as kind of completely dialed into the show as, as I am. Um, however, she does like it, you know, but, but um, it, it has to say something when a character that she's not kind of, you know, completely connected with, you know, connects with her to such a degree that she kind of has said to me today, she was developing a bit of a crush on Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, you know, this is an animated character, but just uh-huh. because, of, you know, the whole kind of just getting, feeling that connection with who he was and feeling like it was a real person and a person he wanted to know. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that's an amazing achievement. It's, it's a it's a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough on on in every sense of the word. Uh, yeah, I renamed I, my dog Katuni. Because I love Katuni so much. <laughs> the answer's to Katuni now, because that's such a cool character. Uh, I want to talk a bit before we get into the, the main the main event, I want to talk briefly about the I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the incredible aerial battles between the Mandalorian uh warriors and you know, the one thing I would say, Jim, is it was like the fulfillment of like uh, so many of my adventures with my action figures. You know, like it was it was the kind of Mando uh, fighting that you you dreamed about. And now you're seeing it, you know, with, you know, the grappling hooks and the, the jet packs and just incredible, incredible works. I think I don't even think that live action has ever attempted something quite so bold and daring as some of those, those aerial fights. Well, it's just incredible to watch them because when you consider the logistics of flying through a city with a jetpack, those types of maneuvers are impossible. So I got technical about it, and I thought to myself, how can they do that with those jetpacks? Because they stop in a neutral way and then shoot back and everything. So I, I told myself there is a tank of um, a very lightweight gas, like a helium, in that backpack that helps them sort of float in the air as those jets are maneuvering to point them in a different direction. Whatever. But um, <laughs> I used to think that way about Watto, too, and I actually heard that description about Watto is that he has a belly that's sort of filled with a helium gas, and that's how he floats. I thought he just had bad gas. Maybe that. You ever maybe smelled Watto? You ever smelled him? 
I should have had those tamales for lunch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, uh, Jason, uh, to answer your question uh, or statement, uh, just to back it up, it was some extremely exciting aerial footage, uh, great battles, really very creative in the way everything was orchestrated and choreographed. And it was everything you were imagining when you were 11 years old in 1980 with your 12-inch Boba Fett action figure and you were running around the house with him over your head and he was doing all this great stuff with all this killer arsenal of weapons that he was wearing. To see that all come to life is actually, yes, very much wish fulfillment come true. It's a big payoff for a Star Wars fan who's been with it ever since they originally fell in love with the Boba Fett character and that killer suit of armor he wears. It was everything that you wanted as a Star Wars fan. I don't care what generation fan you are, original trilogy, prequel trilogy, expanded universe, or Clone Wars. That particular scene right there is not only a high point for the Clone Wars series, but for the Star Wars saga in general. So memorable. This whole episode was something that we've been dying for from Clone Wars. Like I said, ever since we saw Darth Maul's head in that shattered crystal ball, we wanted the big payoff. And God bless him, the Clone Wars crew came through and then some. It felt like three episodes in one. It really did, and I loved even the details of the one uh, Death Watch with the Maul horns. Like, that guy's really oh. kissing Maul's ass, right? No, <laughs> you like that? That was my... I, I actually really liked it. I thought was it was great. Thing I was just about to bring up. I said I would love everything except for, for that. It was like, oh, that's right. a little too much. No, I but, loved it. I loved it. The guy's a kiss-up. I'm glad you brought no. it because I actually Get thought... Get those antlers. No. <laughs> I actually thought... I, I loved everything else. And I agree, Jimmy, what you said about the the Mandalorian combat, Mando on Mando, flying through the streets of the planet. That was breathtaking. It was everything you'd want in Star Wars action sequence. Even the explosions now, they have that little the rainbow in them now that they got at the end of the droid episode. There's something like slightly nuclear or something about their power supply. So they do that when there's like that uh, the, the rainbow texture in the explosion, which I thought was beautiful. Things have never exploded so well in animation or on screen in the series. It's It, it was fantastic. Uh, all right. Oh, now, no, wait, wait, wait. Oh, okay. All right. We got lost in what Kyle was saying, and I forgot what I was trying to say. You what brought was- up that Death Watch soldier who had the bucket with the horns on the head. Now, I have been mistaken ever since Star Wars Celebration, and I'm sure I've said this on the show. I think I even said it on the show. Yes. I know I sent you, Kyle, pictures of this Mando before we saw the episode. I actually thought that Darth Maul suited up in Death Watch armor, and those were actually his legit horns coming out of that helmet. I thought it was either him or Savage, but it wasn't. So I got fooled on that one. I thought that was going to be actually be Darth Maul wearing Death Watch armor, but I was, I was shocked when I saw them both together in the same room. There's a long history of people getting confused about Darth Maul anyway, Jimmy, because when I understand that when they were first attempting to to do the real makeup for the movies, that the, the actual design that Ian did was just feathers tied to his head. It was right, never meant right. to be horns, was it? Right. So it's, mm. it's no surprise that you're thinking the horns are coming through the helmet. I mean, it's a small mistake, really. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Yes. How cool would it be if Hasbro had put out a special offer this year, which was a vintage carded 
live action looking Mando with Sith coloring. How cool would it be if Hasbro actually put out anything this year? Yo, Hasbro, I'll pay you $30 for that figure. That is awesome. And it can, be, it can still be three and three-quarter inch. You don't even need to make it a six-inch figure. And it, as, long as, as long as it's on a vintage package and not like an Enter Soundman package. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's that like, is like a layup. Everybody would want that. That's like a – you know how many nerds want that as a troop builder? Yeah, I don't even endorse troop. You're gonna, you're gonna have to buy, Kyle. You're just gonna have to buy the custom job on eBay. It's all there is. Sadly, I am. Yeah, right, right. Imagine how many of those we're gonna get a celebration. I mean, this this episode is rife with costumes. By the way, I didn't notice prior to Maul's takeover of the Death Watch that there were red and black Mandos. Were there, or was that a change? A new thing. I I think they painted up once Maul took over. Yeah, they needed a visual distinction, so you knew like which faction was which. It was like a stylistic choice, you know. So yeah, right, anybody right. could understand who was fighting who. You're, obviously, you're dealing with masked characters with similar apparatus on their back and all the same weapons. So you kind of have to have something to at the pace the show moves to just signify who they are and what they stand for. They, they didn't, didn't, I, I don't think it came out in the dialogue in the show, but Bo-Katan's fraction of Death Watch that was still loyal to Pre Vizsla, they were known as the Night Owls. And hmm. I don't even think that came out in dialogue from Well, how the did show. you know about it? I read it on the DVR. The DVR oh, wow. description for the episode said the Night Owls. Huh. Well, are we going to talk about some Sith magic? Okay, all, all right, all right. We, <laughs> we're going to talk about the... Uh, by the way, Jim, we're going to go over tonight, so... Yep. Send a, send send a note because this this episode uh, we may never get this opportunity again, right? But the big duel and there were you know we thought last week that the pre Vizsla Darth Maul duel was the end all be all. We we all talked about how this this belonged right alongside Duel of the Fates as one of the most incredible lightsaber battles ever seen in Star Wars. And how do you top it? Well, I think they topped it. And everything from the moment you hear the Emperor's theme as he's in the chambers as Chancellor Palpatine, right after, and I think it comes right after Satine is killed. And it's finally, you know, the, 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 it's finally crescendoed to the point where now he is aware of just how out of control this situation is, and he's got to go and clean house. And I, I, got, I get goosebumps talking about it. I got goosebumps when I watched it. And then every moment since where, you know, the, the, that, that came after from the landing and him proceeding down, just the way they made the model walk down the ramp, it just took me right back to Return of the Jedi. They, they got the walk just perfectly. As he, the, the, the speed, everything, as he came down the, uh, the ramp and choked out the Mando guards and just, just like, like he was just showing up for another day on the job and jumping on that speeder and going off to, to meet Darth Maul. The setup was just perfect. Everything you want. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it was, they can't all be questions, guys. Come on. Yes. Aren't, aren't you excited? Yes, yes it was exciting. Clone Wars. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, Jason, it was exciting, but it's, it's a, a scene that we were extremely excited to see at Star Wars Celebration last summer 
by now it's been seen so many times. Um, however, yeah, the impact that it had on, on this episode was truly spectacular. It was like what, it was diminished for you just because you saw it well, for yeah, like, yeah. like five seconds. Know, Are you serious? Yeah, they what? show us way too much. They show us way too much of anything everywhere. All, all right, the- cut his mic off. Cut him off. It's going insane for all of us now. What do you mean? Trying to get us less. Yeah, dude. What are you doing? Oh, please give us less previews. How could they possibly give us less previews? They don't give us any previews. They give us one preview a year. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy doesn't like the spoilers. Oh, one twice as many episodes. Well, never- I can see it. Maybe, I mean, maybe if you've seen it a bit, the people that didn't see it, there's the there's maybe more, had more of the shock. Like, what? He's here in the flesh? And if you didn't, if you weren't teased by it, yeah, there's probably that immediate surprise. But the tension wasn't diminished for me. The build-up, when he walks oh. in the room and Darth Maul senses his presence, I mean, that harkens back to, like, A New Hope. It was... It, it, oh, the line was, is right out of A New Hope. I sense yeah, something. It a presence so I haven't cool. felt since... Then, Master! I mean, it's just... Uh, Whitworth's delivery on... Well, on everything. I mean, the guy yeah. is you just... You don't know where it's going. It's just like, you know, he... Then when he calls him out on it, and he's like, you're deceiving me... And yeah. then things just get crazy. It was it had everything you could have asked for. And it doesn't matter if it's live action or or animated. It was just a fantastic scene. But if this doesn't get nominated for best animation on television next year at the Annie's, then something's wrong. Something oh no, it'll very, be up wrong. against, you know, it'll be up against Monsters Inc. 2. Not like I have much faith in that. But you know what? It may be it will help them next year because I notice at the Annie's it's always Shows affiliated with Disney or a big studio because they also have much more influence on those award shows, just like studios do at the Academy Awards. So hopefully, for the sake of this show and the people that work so hard in doing the best animation on television, period, I don't know how you can argue it, um, it's cinematic animation. Um, this, this episode and this animation and this fight sequence in particular – and the performances of these actors are the highest echelon of television animation there is. I don't think that the models have ever accordingly. Yeah, it it really should. I don't think that the character models have ever melded so well with the voice actors as they did in these these last couple episodes, especially this episode. One did it real- surprise you that Sidious didn't try to negotiate with Maul at all? Or try to see what he's got going on or what he's all about. He just came he knows. in on, on killing him. No, he wasn't going to kill him. He wasn't hell-bent on killing him. He had to get rid of Savage Press. He toys with him just like Maul toyed with Previsla. He plays it out. He's in complete control. And then he puts him in his place after he kills his brother and lets him have his, his moment. And lets him see, like, your brother wasn't even a real... Apprentice. He wasn't even a real Sith. It was manufactured by dark magic. Now you want to know what the dark side is? That's what I've been offering. This mm. is the real deal. Yeah. So and like, I'm putting you back in your place, and I'm going to smack you around like a rag doll, and you are <laughs> going to be my biatch. <laughs> <laughs> so like, like everyone else here, when the episode ended, you were yelling at the TV set as the credits rolled, What uses? What? Yeah. What? What uses? He said, I have other uses. Oh, oh yes, yes, of course. Yeah, what, we got to find... Like well, even the setting they picked, like starting it out in that 
in that um, big government building and having it spill out from the throne room into that like back alley and the way it was was lit with like just like street lamps, you know, with this eerie mural on the back wall. Um, which what was the exact mural? It looked like was it Picasso? Mandos of Jedi. Picasso. It was it was it was two different Picasso. Is it Guernica or Kernica? It's just about. Looked like they had swords. Yeah, it's Jedi versus Mando, wasn't it? I think. Which I liked that. I thought that. I mean, it was cool. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it didn't matter because it added up to the ambience, which was a nighttime fight that no one else witnessed. You know, which is kind of like what you'd have with with these kind of things. These things get settled in the shadows. You know, it's lit mm. by these street lamps, and the biggest probably event in the galaxy in years just went down, and no one knows but those two. You know. I, I kind of feel as though, like, it's it's I, I find it hard to sometimes detach myself from the technicalities of, of watching a movie, you know, because you know, like like a lot of people in the film industry, I think that that's that's the the kind of a part of the thing that just fascinates you, and it takes a lot, especially when something is animated, to completely lose myself in something, you know, and 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 it was really, really easy to lose myself. As soon as Maul walked through, uh, as soon as um, Palpatine walked through that door, it was just completely mesmerising. And every expression on the Emperor's face would just blew me That's away. That's what got me. I, there were, there were these moments where, yes, Paul, where it mirrored exactly some of the kind of weird expressions that McDiarmid was making in the duel against Mace Windu. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think I think the thing to sort of, you know, in, in terms of them kind of getting an award for character animation, I mean, like, you know, th- these characters, you know, I mean, at its most basic level, you've got these controllers that kind of, you know, affect the movements of the face. I cannot imagine how many controllers it took them to 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 kind of build that 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 you know variety of expression in, in Palpatine's face. And, and, and nobody necessarily even be aware of it because it's buried under a hood. It's dark and what have you. But they'll just kind of feel that something is somehow much more kind of aligned with the performance in the, in the original trilogy. I just thought it was incredibly like the Palpatine, you know, in the movies. And yet the model itself looks, you know, very little like the actual actor, Mm. but the, but Mm -hmm. the mannerisms and expression just really brought him into it. I mean, the, the effortless kind of power and insane, movements that he made. I mean, it was, it was clear by Revenge of the Sith that um, Ian McDiarmid was not an accomplished sword person and they worked around it in a way that I thought was quite effective. But in this, it worked even more. It was almost like, you know, you know I mean, there's a, obviously there's a famous Kung Fu style called Drunken Master where the, where the, the Kung Fu guy basically impersonates a, a drunken person. Right. And for me, it was almost like the Emperor is just kind of, he's so insane. <laughs> That he just he, he never takes the simple route, and like every move that he made was just like it would not work for anybody else. But he's just so crazy; it was like every every movement was like a spasm. Well, he's laughing through the whole thing. I mean, this yeah. is a guy who never, for a moment, not a second, was he never not on top of these guys, owning these guys, never. I mean, when he walked through the door and like you know, and that, those guys kind of stuck to the wall and everything. I mean that. Yeah, I mean that was. I would have loved. I mean, I personally enjoyed this fight more than the end of Revenge of the Sith. I thought, I thought this was amazingly, you know, easy to connect to. It was really dramatic and emotional. Whereas the fight for me in Revenge of the Sith felt very um, 
kind of repetitious uh, and mechanical and little, I, yeah mechanical yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, whereas this just felt really kind of character driven you know I mean, and Maul's Maul's reaction when when the when he realizes the emperor is on his doorstep I mean that was that was fantastic there was just the way that he was so in power and he was so kind of calling the shots for the whole episode and then just immediately took this subservient well, it's like role. it's like yeah it's like the, the you know the the cocky kid and then the dad finally comes home yeah and yeah it was amazing he's like amazing, oh crap amazing amazing yeah it was it worked on absolutely absolutely every level and uh but jim to your point uses you know we were talking about how he wouldn't. It was so. It was too easy to kill Obi Wan. He 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 wanted Obi Wan to suffer, and in a in kind of a like way, is that not what we see Palpatine doing with Darth Maul, making Absolutely. him suffer? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Take away. Well, and also that answers the question that we threw at Sam Witwer last week about the relationship between Darth Maul does and Savage. Does Maul actually have compassion for his brother? Do they have a brotherly bond? Something that goes beyond the master apprentice relationship. Is there a real, really something underneath the surface there? And I think we saw it. I think we got the evidence as Maul grieved the death of Savage. Would somebody really fully steeped in the dark side and be a self proclaimed Sith Lord grieve over the death of his apprentice? Or would he try to instead turn Palpatine into his apprentice because his apprentice was defeated by Palpatine? That's the rule of the Sith. And if Maul was a legitimate Sith Lord, then he would have done just that. But he couldn't. He never graduated beyond the level of apprentice. He'll always be the Sith apprentice unless he's able to extract more information and more power from the dark side enough to kill Palpatine, as we know. That will, he'll never get the chance to do that. So what happens to him? He falls back in that subservient role, pleading for mercy and just being tooled with by his master. So I found that very interesting to see that compassion. I, come did out you think, him. Jim, did you hear uh, Clancy Brown retreat away from Savage Press and back into sort of his, the, his delivery before the transformation for the transformation. Yeah. Because after he was transformed by the night sister magics, he definitely had a deeper, more incredible Hulk sort of sound. Yeah. It was yeah. just very resonant and very, um, 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 just gruff, gruff sounding, I guess very, yeah. you know, just deep and, and animalistic. And, uh, yeah, he was actually, he sounded much more, uh, clear and much more, um, articulate than we'd been seeing Savage Press. We've just kind of come to assume him to be just like, like I said, like Incredible Hulk, like this just big brute. And he was definitely in that role during these episodes. However, I think we saw some of the, the, the pre previous intelligence that that character might've had before the transformation. I think we saw a little bit of that when he was running around on the garbage planet, looking for Maul. Mm hmm. Is that you, brother? You, brother? You, brother? You, brother? <laughs> you know, those scenes there, he seemed to be analytical. He seemed to be logical to an extent. Um, he seemed to be reasonable. Um, but then, yeah, he fell back into that sort of that, that bodyguard role almost, you know, where he definitely was the, the lesser of the two as far as you felt as far as intelligence, as far as strategy, as far as mastery of the dark side. But, but that's what the subservient Sith normally is, as we saw Darth Maul on screen right. in context to Sidious. So, I mean, right. 
But as we learned, Darth Maul, that, that was nothing but an illusion, the Darth Maul we see in these episodes. He might have learned a lot from, from uh, Sidious, but he had not mastered what he had learned. And so it was just a big facade. He was able to take advantage of those who were weaker than him and those who relied on things like honor and trust. He was able to exploit all that. But at the end of the day, he's still Palpatine's former apprentice. He's not even, you know, he's not nearly the Sith master. He's not fit to shine Palpatine's shoes. I mean, let's face it. He is. We know the next time we see him. He's been put in his place. He realized how much he has to learn. And we're, next time we see him, he theoretically should be stronger. So what's Palpatine? I don't, do? oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think he's going to be stronger. I think so. I don't think I that think Palpatine's so, going to rehabilitate this guy at maybe all. Darth Maul could emerge from this series alive, under the radar, and George loves all his characters the same. Filonio says he loves Ahsoka as much as he loves Luke Skywalker. You never know. Maybe there's a way Darth Maul ends up in the sequel trilogy. Who knows? Well, I'm wondering if Darth Maul is going to play into this whole sabotage thing that's going to come up. And I'm just saying he's, didn't, he, he's going to keep him alive for a reason and not to just torture him. He's going think, to use him. Uh, he's going to use him as a fall guy. I mean, I was thinking he's going to mm. use him as as as. Uh, you know, bait that, oh, hey, guys, guys, I found the Sith Lord. Here he is. Now he's going to clone him. <laughs> no, it, it could be. There's a lot of potential. I mean, you could put fire under Dooku's butt by saying, by bringing him back and by making him more efficient than he's ever been by threatening that maybe you're going to get rid of him. There's so many things he could do with him. There's so many off the radar things he could do with him without even being a literal you know, that you bring up Dooku. That's interesting. We have no indication at all that Palpatine made Dooku aware that any of this was going on. Nor, sh- nor should he until he needs to. Right. Right. But I'm just saying there's a, there's, a, there's a possibility, however slight, it's fun fiction mm-hmm. to speculate. But Darth Maul could survive beyond this series and into who knows where. What is- As a more powerful... Disciple. I think he's going to use him and and flush him. I think he's just he's a pawn. He's another tool in the arsenal. Maybe, but we just don't know yet. No, so no, we don't exciting. know. No, right, right. And it is exciting. It's very here's exciting. A, here's a fun thought. What if Maul is injured so severely that he has to put him in a Vader suit? Mm. <laughs> like an like an actual <laughs> Vader suit. Is this well, an old Republic spinoff where everyone needs suits and apparatus to breathe? Just as long as his horns poke out the top. Did Dark right? Horse yeah. fight this? We don't, know, we don't know where the suit came from, do we? I mean, it just they might have got a dozen of them in there, in there somewhere. In like the, there's I a mean, closet? Like, they're all hanging up on hangers in the... Yeah. You know, <laughs> complete with the boots? Are you going to have a Sith girlfriend who also has <laughs> tattooing? <laughs> Well, you know, you're right about the red and the black, uh, even the Mandalorians. Uh, uh, they're just they're just copying, copying the Rebel Force radio logo. That's all they're doing. That's right. That's right. I like to, I like to think of that. That's right. Um, but it does make you wonder. I think Kyle brings up a great point. What's the fate of Darth Maul? What's the fate of the planet of Mandalore? What's what's the fate yeah, of? That's what's so great is they escalated everything. They we got the best drama we've ever had, but now we've left with also. Exciting new questions, great questions that have ramifications that could carry 
30, 40, 50 years onward. Who knows if if Darth Maul is going to be mothballed as a failsafe in case something happens to go continue out the philosophy of the Sith. Because Sidious is a very patient, thoughtful person who plans for everything. If this was a movie, if this was a movie, the the last scene in this would have been the biggest cliffhanger since Han going into Carbonite. That's you're absolutely right, Paul. It's absolutely. I mean, at the end of that, like you like you were saying, it was like what what plans, you know? Yeah. What you can't stop there. You cannot stop there. Well, I hope we get to see it. I hope we get to see it. I hope it's. I really hope that it ties into the next arc, Uh, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Well, we we did find out from the Hangout, which, by the way, guys, if you haven't checked out the Hangout, please do. It's available on the official Star Wars YouTube channel, and there was a lot of great information in there. It was Dave Filoni and uh, Ashley Eckstein and Matt Lanter and Sam Witwer, Pablo Hidalgo, and another guy. I can't remember his name, <laughs> but he was a, a columnist, I guess, for Entertainment Weekly or something. I don't know. Hollywood.com or something. Okay, okay, Hollywood.com. And it seemed like a very nice guy. But uh, nonetheless, it's it's phenomenal. And they do let some cats out of the proverbial bag. Like, we're going to see Grand Moff, well, not Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain Tarkin uh, is going to reappear and play a somewhat significant role over the next four episodes. And, you know, these these next four episodes are going to wrap it up. That's it. Clone Wars Season 5, done. We are on the verge of the final arc of the fifth season. They're, they're shortening the season a little bit, not 22 Did we ever episodes. get an explanation as to why the season is shortened? Uh, it makes no sense to me because they're, they're pushing the Clovis arc off into another season. If there is going to be another season, as far as we know, uh, we don't know where the Clone Wars is going to end up after this season because Cartoon Network released their schedule for next year and the Clone Wars is nowhere to be found on it. So that opens up speculation as to could Clone Wars be moving to a Disney channel like Disney XD. We don't know. No announcements have been made. But we do know this, this Clovis arc, which was actually supposed to air in the first part of season five has been dropped completely from the schedule that was featuring the, the great footage of Ambo snowboarding with his helmet and mm. in hot pursuit of, uh, of uh, Padme and Clovis and Anakin. And it was just action packed. And they previewed that material, not only at star Wars celebration, but going way back almost a year ago to star Wars weekends at Disney, they were showing that footage. So, you know, those episodes are ready to rock. What is holding them back? Well, I well, think what's holding them back is they don't want to break the momentum because if they, yeah. if they give me a little two off Clovis episode, it gets a big, who cares after this? Well, well, but I mean, why hold it off till after the Darth Maul story arc? You should have played it maybe in front of D squad or after D squad or hey, instead of D squad, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah. th- I don't know why the season has been cut short, and it's just a mystery. So it well, might I think something fans overall need to be vocal. If you're listening to the show, you're probably a big fan of this series. We're five seasons in. We don't know where it's going to end up, but I think everybody, if you love this thing, you've invested this much time in it. You got to be vocal. Tell Disney how much you love it, not just Lucasfilm. I would tweet them. I would just say how much you love this series, how excited you are. So we make sure that as they're making their plans for the future, that this, being a vital chapter in Star Wars Legacy, does not get overshadowed by some of the big things we're hearing that they're doing. 
Um, you don't want them to forget about this and how important it is and how people have invested so much time into this and how there needs to be fruition. So you don't want them to take any resources away from it. You don't want them to let it get its big finale that it deserves. I'm not saying that they are, but I'm just saying it could easily get lost in a shuffle and all of a sudden you have all like six movies now they're announcing basically. Um, people should be be vocal and just remind them how much uh, this show is loved and um, – and how great we think it's actually going. Well, they're definitely we, we, we know all indications are that they are aligning the company, that they are aligning everything to march towards Episode 7 in 2015 and some of these other one-offs that they're talking about. Where does Clone Wars fit into this? We just don't know. So I agree with what Kyle's saying. I would we, love this to run as long as possible. And I think the more people are vocal about how awesome it is, it's only going to help ensure that. So don't be a quiet fan. Be a vocal fan. Now's the time to make sure Star Wars is shaped the way you want it to be. And yeah, we're going to get movies, but I want to make sure Star Wars still has a, a really strong presence on television. So even if it means sitting down your friend who doesn't know any better, if you like Star Wars, you are going to love this. Show it. Spread it. This like, is this is the gateway drug, this episode. Talk if you, about it. If you've is been waiting for a, an episode to show that cynic out there that has not been into the series thus far, show them this episode. Here's an important question. What, how long, um, how, what's the duration of Revenge of the Sith in terms of days, weeks, months? Do we know how, you know, how much time that occupies? Somebody told me once that it went over the course of nine days. About nine days. So we're only talking about kind of a couple of weeks at most. Really? What's, what's uh, the stop? I'm just saying somebody told me that once. They had it all figured out. What's to stop the Clone Wars kind of, you know, between seasons, Revenge of the Sith? And then when it comes back, you know, we're carrying on with... That's what I've always thought. I mean, I feel like the third act of this show needs to be after Revenge of the Sith. It's the fallout of the war on these characters. It could even be the first five years after Revenge of the Sith. How amazing would that be? The thing for a kid is to see Anakin in this context. Maybe that's the only Anakin you've ever known is in the animation context. Your parent introduces you to this show in the safe format of animation, not realizing that they're suicide bombers, etc. <laughs> so you're in this show. That's all you know. You haven't graduated to the big movies yet. And then you see that Anakin becomes Darth Vader in the show. They can do that too. It can have its own amazing moments. And you can be like, as a kid, having to, having to reclassify how you feel about Anakin, where you watch him go from a hero to the, the villain at that point in his life, knowing that he's going to come full circle again. But that could be powerful to see in this format. They've already built the model. We saw it on um, yeah. Mortis. You know, he was in the fire. They have an animated version of this. Let's at least send it off with a big movie in two seasons or whatever. Um, Disney has the best home video distribution arm there is. So one way or another, we should see this stuff. And I would love to see one chapter after Revenge of the Sith. That's the fallout from all this. And in, in that suit, in the filmation style. I consider that the, the, you know, Zlet Vader's kind of first few years were still apart from the people. Get out the hook on Bateman! <laughs> oh, and you know what? You guys are also debating... Hey, wait, wait, no, the music's playing, man. The music's playing. What are you doing to me? Stop the music. Stop for the music. <laughs> this has been a blast. No, I mean, we deserve this. We, we deserve this episode, especially after uh, 
some of what we have endured. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, what a payoff it was. Amazing, amazing stuff. I, I neglected to go through the credits at the top of the show, which I've done for the last five years. This was episode 16 of season five, written by Chris Collins and directed by Brian uh, Kalen O'Connell, <laughs> our favorite Irishman or Scotsman. I don't know. Anyway, uh, original air date. February 2nd, 2013. Wowie wow. We got it. Oh, by the way, how about that shot? Once the blast doors open and Obi-Wan is looking upon the Battle of Mandalore. Was that amazing? Beautiful. Amazing shot. I I, I just can't say enough. It seemed like truly for this episode, every star that needed to align aligned. I really wouldn't have changed anything. There was one part that bugged me a little bit. That was the double rescue of Satine. It's a little repetitive. I don't know why she had to be rescued twice. But I'll let that go. I'll let that go because everything else was just sheer perfection. Big thanks to our panel. Kyle, I know you got lots to say. Do you have a a last word on the lawless? Uh, It was sensational. I hope that all Star Wars fans get to see it. I know people have this elitist view of the movies and they're not going to get into the animation, but you're really, really missing out. If you're a Star Wars fan, communicate that. Get some people, other people watching this. There's a lot uh, to be gained as as a fan of Star Wars from watching these. They just add so many dimensions as this one perfectly shows. Um... You can say something about the movies and, and add a vital chapter to Star Wars, no matter what the format is. And, and Dave and crew have really excelled. And, and James Arnold Taylor and Sam Witt were at the center of this thing with driving force, and it was sensational. And I just want to say, Darth Vader becomes Darth Vader when Darth Sidious says, henceforth, you shall be known as Darth Vader. No. Yes. <laughs> Because he made the decision. All right, wait, wait, all right, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, we cannot get into this now. The music's playing. I only have eight minutes of outro music. There's no way we can solve this in eight minutes. But I will say this. I think that that is a question that's important enough that we should do a little one-off show. Just about that question. Do it. Something we might be able to figure out how to do. And by we, I mean Jimmy Mack. All right. Paul Bateman. Thanks for staying up late with us. By the way, you can uh, harass Kyle on Twitter, Kyle underscore Newman. That would be at Kyle underscore Newman. Right? Is that it, Kyle? Yeah. And I also talk a lot of Star Wars on my Facebook fan page. So yes. We can be a little more verbose there. All right. And where do we just search for Kyle Newman it's, on? Yeah, Kyle Newman fan page. There you go. I think. Look it up. Paul Bateman, thanks for staying up late for us. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. If you really want to finish that thought, now's the time. The floor is yours. Mr. Bateman, the floor is yours. I mean, I was just thinking how a couple of things. Fantastic to see more with that black blade. How perfect is that? I hope he manages to keep it and it comes back. It was wonderful to finally see that new Yoda model with a little bit more clarity. His hair looks Yeah, he did some Rogaine, I think. Yeah, but it wasn't as interesting as uh, Satine's Taglatelli hair, which I thought was very, very interesting. I think they're going for pasta hair this season. Her come-hither hair. Uh, which which works for me. Amazing, amazing show, and I, I really hope this, this series just runs and runs and runs because it seems to me as though every season tops the last. And if, if this season carries on like this, well, I mean, really, who needs movies? At Paul RMQ, that's where you can find Paul on the Twitter engaging in all kinds of talk about Star Wars and 
various other topics. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate it. Love to you and Athena, of course. Thanks, man. Jimmy Mack, final thoughts. The Lawless. Wow, Jason. Final thoughts on what I consider to be a true high point, not just for the Clone Wars, but for Star Wars in general. What a great run this has been, going back to the Night Sisters trilogy of uh, Season 3. That was a moment when I really felt like this television series had begun to mature. And as you know, when you go through puberty, there are some awkward moments along the way. But I think that this show has definitely blossomed into a, a grown big boy show. And that's what we got with this episode was big boy adventure, big boy consequences, and big boy tragedy. It was uh, very interesting to see everything unfold. Epic in nature, um, incredible action, incredible character moments, incredible, incredible, incredible. I'm looking at that teaser poster from beginning of the season, Who Will Fall? And there's a picture of of uh, the Emperor of uh, Palpatine, and he's, he's standing there with the volcanoes of Mustafar behind him, and there are ten faces on this poster. And if you look closely, we've lost four of the ten this season. Pre Vizsla, Adi Gallia, Darth Maul survived, Hondo survived, Rex has survived thus far. We lost Savage, Soka, mm, she's on shaky ground. Embo got his butt kicked, but he's still around. Ventress, yet to be determined, and Satine, six feet under. So we've lost uh, 40% of that poster. So, yes, there have been consequences to this season. No question about it. Like everyone, I was yelling, what of, what other uses at the TV at the end of the uh, episode? I'm dying to see what happens with Maul. Uh, Sam Whitworth did reveal on the Clone Wars Hangout that there are more opportunities to bring back Maul, more stories featuring him. And, uh, you know, Sidious, now he not only has Darth Maul, but like you said, Paul, Maul has that dark saber. I'm sure Palpatine isn't going to let him keep that. I think he's going to take it from him, and maybe we'll even see Sidious using the dark saber at some point down the road. And what of the Death Watch? The battle continues on Mandalore with the threat of the Republic and the Jedi intervening. That's where we left things with them. And I would love to see their ultimate defeat at the hands of the Jedi to fulfill the history of Star Wars, which in the Empire Strikes Back novelization, it said Boba Fett wore the armor of a warrior group that was defeated by the Jedi during the Clone Wars. So now that we've seen all these personal stories played out via Pre Vizsla, Satine, Obi-Wan, Bo-Katan, Corky, I'd like to see now the big story get wrapped up and have the Jedi go to Mandalore and wipe out what's left of the Death Watch. That's where I would like to see this go next. New Gunray, not this episode. We'll find out. One thing we do know based on the Google Hangout is that the seeds of Ahsoka's fate are going to be sown over the next four episodes. Maybe more. Maybe more than just the seeds. I think we are in store for a big shock at the end of this season. That's my prediction. The Lumen are going to get. <laughs> That's going to do it for us. For Clone Wars Declassified right here at Rebel Force Radio. We'll see you next time, guys. For Paul Bateman, Kyle Newman, and all of us here Clone Wars Declassified, I'm Jason. And I'm Jimmy Mack. And remember... The Force will be with you always. Always.